Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the North Point Community Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free North Point app where you can access all of our recent message content. And actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at North Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, about a decade and a half ago uh, here at North Point and some of our campuses and even some of our strategic partners who a bunch of them are joining us today, um, we had an environment called Intimate Encounters, uh, which sounds cool, but uh, the description literally was something about how this was a specialty adult, uh, married adult environment, which isn't a great thing to Google, by the way, uh, when you're, when you're uh, trying to find out more about this environment that your church has. And, and from the very beginning, we got, uh, we got the strangest of responses. There'd be some people like, well, what kind of church is this? And then there'd be other people who go, okay, this sounds like my kind of church, you know, like tell me more about this environment. And um, the, actually the joke started amongst our staff and I, I probably shouldn't do this um, and telling our staff, but uh, in our staff meetings, our staff at that time was already large enough that in staff meeting, you'd stand up, you'd walk up to the mic and introduce yourself. So I would walk up and I'd say, hey, I'm Joel. I work at Buckhead Church. Everybody say, hey, Joel, because it was that kind of meeting. Anyway, so, um, so, so there's a guy on our staff named Ben and Ben's really witty. And so Ben walked up to the mic one day and he's gonna t- share a story he said, hey, I'm Ben. Everybody said, hey, Ben. He said, I work in the Intimate Encounter store. <laughs> Which wasn't a thing, by the way, but that officially killed the name of that environment and he no longer works on staff. So anyway... Um, <laughs> Uh, the truth is, is uh, today I want to talk a little bit about this because uh, when we think about intimacy, when we think about the idea of intimacy, we often conflate it or equate it with sex, which is an interesting thing. But in our world, this is what happens when you, when you it's like when you're going to talk about sex, it's kind of like a little more PC way to talk about it. You talk about intimacy, but here's what we know. And here, I know you know this, uh, you're, a, you're a, a, a smart crowd. Intimacy does not equal sex. Lots of people uh, have experienced sex that's not intimate. And many people also experience intimacy apart from sexuality. And, but the, the problem is in our hypersexualized culture, uh, we've distorted our understanding. It's distorted our understanding of true intimacy. And so that's what I want to talk about in this series. Because so many of us, that's what we really desire. That's what we really want to experience. And we've been less left disillusioned and discouraged and dissatisfied in our relationships. And Jen and I have watched in our lives uh, too many couples, friends of ours, close friends of ours, who grow apart. And at some point, close enough was no longer good enough. And when that had gone on long enough, they sort of went their separate ways. And some of you have seen this too. And some of you, you may have experienced this. And so... I just felt like we should talk about this. And the truth is, is some of us lose, some of us have never found the true intimacy that we're looking for. And so that's what I want us to discuss. What is true intimacy? And how do you experience it? What are the essential components? We're gonna get really practical. What are the essential components for cultivating and experiencing true intimacy? But before that, we have to trace back to how we got to this cultural moment. Because the cultural moment that we're in complicates this in a significant way. And some of you are thinking, you're not really going to draw in this series, are you? And I'm not only going to draw, I'm going to draw people. And so um, I'm going to start with you. So um, 
this is you. And you, you came to this cultural moment in an interesting way. And I, I don't know why I always draw people with hair. Maybe it's because I wish I had some. But, but the truth is, is, is you, you didn't get here by accident. There was a series of things that happened in your life that brought you to this cultural moment. And, and some people would say, you know, we need, we need to go back, you know, to the sexual revolution. But I actually think we need to go back further than that to discover how we got to this place in history. In fact, we need to go at least back. We're going to start all the way back in the 1900s. Now, we could go, we could go back further but around the turn of the century in 1900, a guy named Sigmund Freud, which you all learned about in school at some point way back when, uh, Sigmund Freud came on the scene. And Sigmund Freud, he made this claim. He, he said that, that the chief psychological problem of mankind, the, the, the chief problem in terms of our mental and emotional well-being was the, the, the problem was sexual repression, that there were certain desires that you have that when repressed, he actually said that that was the beginning of all neurosis. The beginning of all things going bad internally for you was when you would repress these desires. And, and so he basically said that the, the moral codes that, that have been created in our society and mostly through Christianity, but other religions as well, that they were repressive. And this was like, this was new. This was around 1900. This was a new thing after, you know, the, these, these moral codes have been the, the, the cultural norms for, for hundreds of years, like more than 1,500 years. And he, he basically said that to repress these sexual desires, this, this real satisfaction to keep you from, from this is, is what actually makes people sick, which was an interesting idea. But here's the other thing. He was smart enough to know that you couldn't just take the lid off and have a sexual free-for-all because you would, you would have chaos. You can't have that and also have civilization. So one of the things that he, he acknowledged was that, that things like the institution of, of marriage, excuse me, um, actually create civilization to which, you know, something like this doesn't create chaos in our culture. But uh, Wilhelm Reich, in, in 1930, he came along and he agreed with, with uh, Freud in, in the, the idea that, that these, you know, this repression of sexual desire was bad, but he went further because he was writing in the 1930s in Germany. And writing in the 1930s in Germany, most of us know what was happening in Germany at that time. There was a, a very oppressive authoritarian state. And he basically said that, that these moral codes reinforced a patriarchal family which the only purpose of reinforcing the patriarchal family was to preserve the authoritarian state. And so he said, look, this is not only repressive, this is oppressive. This is others forcing their ideals, forcing their morales. And, and he basically said, this is bad. In fact, he said, religiosity is, that is hostile to sex is the product of an authoritarian state. So anything that provides re restrictions for these desires inside of you it's bad. It's actually, it's oppressive and it's about controlling people and it's about denying them uh, the experience that would lead them to being their true self. And his, his ideology was that greater human flourishing would come through sexual liberation. And this is, this is what he wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. And he, he proposed that, that, that with sexual liberation would come greater human flourishing. And basically Freud and Reich's ideas together along with others, it paved the way for the dismissal of moral authority structures in our world. At the very least, to question them in a significant way that maybe these things, these codes, these, these rules, these things that were provided uh, as guardrails for sexuality, maybe they were actually bad. 
And, and the, the truth is, is this ideology uh, was, took root among sort of academics, but it may have never made it into my mainstream culture without another often overlooked and underestimated factor. The second factor that led to sexual liberation was the developments of modern technology. Now, some of you are thinking, what does technology have to do with this? I'm glad you asked. It has a lot to do with this. In 1960, this is so interesting. In 1960 was the advent of the first widely distributed birth control pill. Now, I, I, know, I know we're getting sensitive now. Some of you are like, oh gosh, like, what are we talking about in church? And I'm gonna re- ask you to resist going political. My, my points aren't political. You'll see in a minute. With the pill, though, risks of sex. I want you to think about this. The risks that came along with sex, both financial and social, were dramatically reduced. No longer um, did, did you have the, the social pressure or, or the fear of, of, of unwanted pregnancy. And so it freed us from unwanted pregnancy and it freed young men from being hunted by their girlfriend's father when they got him pregnant. And so like it, it just, what it did is made recreational sex without long-term commitment a lot safer in our culture. And nobody talked about that. Nobody talked about that, that this, the, the birth control pill was actually removing the lid. It was doing exactly what Freud said could create chaos in our culture. In fact, we, when we talked about safe sex, we didn't, we didn't think about the social or the, the financial responsible repercussions that come along with that. It was more about diseases. And that's where the conversation shifted to. And it's like, you just need to have safe sex, which we're talking about medically now. And, and the interesting thing is, is, is the birth control pill catapulted Freud and Reich's ideologies forward. And then another significant development, 1983. Does anybody know what happened January 1st, 1983? Huge deal. Internet. Biggest change in our world. Yeah, uh, Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> and did I say something wrong? The internet comes along. And, and so... This is interesting. Hugh Hefner, actually, he popularized the, the widespread distribution of adult content. Um, but the internet, look, this is about, think about sexual liberation. The internet freed us from the shame of buying certain magazines for having to stand in a store in front of a certain collection of magazines, the shame of what it might be if somebody caught us or if somebody caught us in the adult film section of the video store. Some of you remember these days, like you, you, were, you were like, it was, this was shameful. This was embarrassing. And, and the internet freed us of that and, and aided by these inventions, I guess you could call them. Once intimate encounters became casual encounters, more and more simply a way of getting your needs met. And this led to hookup culture and Tinder and all sorts of other things. And so here, here's what happened. The, the rejection of these moral authority structures, what it did was in our culture, it made any sexual expression of any kind to fulfill our desires more permissible. And birth control and the internet, among other things. I mean, this, again, I, I realize this is a massive oversimplification, but it made it incredibly accessible. And, and with it becoming more persist, per, uh, permissible and more accessible, what happened is what we experience now is a new normal that's different. And that, congratulations, is how you got here. That you don't think about this, but that's why you believe what you believe. That's why you think what you think. You were born into a culture where this all happened in culture. And today, the way we see what is normal in terms of, uh, of sexual expression 
This is the backdrop. We didn't sit down and go, hey, how should it be? How should we operate? What should this look like? We stepped into a society where these factors led us to where we are. And the promise of the sexual liberation movement was that more authentic expression of sexual desires leads to greater levels of happiness. That was the pursuit, that if we liberate our sexual desires, we'll become happier. Here's what's interesting though, by all measures, you can do your research. I do my research. You can do your own research. Happiness levels uh, in America, in the U.S., both among single and married people, adults in the U.S., has been on decline since, any guesses? The 1960s. It's been on decline in, in, in America since the 1960s. And you know who's, who's, been, who's suffered the most? It's women. Who this was meant to protect and to help. The reality is, is, and I know this, you're smart. Some of you are having arguments in your mind with me right now and you're winning. I get it, it's fine. You're smarter than me. But here's what I want you to know. While correlation doesn't equal causation, this is a fascinating coincidence. It's extraordinary in our world and it's corroborated by lots of other factors. A few we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. But here's what I want you to know. It's unbelievable to me that today at the height of sexual liberation in our society, rates of depression and anxiety are even higher the, the, the factors and, the, and the, the data, it all points in the same direction. And, and amazingly, in the middle of this, the Bible addresses this with insane relevancy, which I know some of you are going, you're going, the Bible, are you kidding me? Like, didn't, didn't we, aren't we past this? Like, I mean, the, we, we moved past this a long time ago, but here's what you need to know. What, what we're gonna read in just a second was written to people in a Greco-Roman society. And it was before all the moral codes that we lived by in, in the West for nearly 1500 years or so, or a little longer before those were even established. It was, it was when there was a sexual free-for-all in the Greco-Roman culture in the name of gods and sacrifices and all sorts of, of crazy things were, that were going on. And, and I know some of you are thinking, so, so that's gonna justify us having a Bible lesson. Like we're adults, Joel. Don't you know we're adults? We're gonna, hold on, time out. You're gonna give us a Bible lesson on sex? But you know what? That was the pushback Paul got when these sexual morals were first introduced the ones we freed ourselves from. In fact, this is what Paul said. He, he said, this is, what, this is what you would say. You would say, I'm allowed to do anything. I'm an adult. Uh, this is my body. I'll do whatever I want with it. I mean, I should be able to. In fact, this is something, Paul, you told us. You told us that, that we're free, that, that by grace we've been set free. And, and it's right. You can say that. You can say that you're allowed to do anything. But, but here's the thing. Not everything is good for you. If you, if you wonder um, maybe where the angst comes from, it, it comes from this. H have you ever stopped to think about not what you grew up with or what, what somebody else might think about you? Have you ever stopped to think, is what we're experiencing, is it good for us? Like is what we're experiencing, we're seeing in our culture, is it good for people? I mean, is it good that the average teenage boy carries around a device all the time with him, that he's on all the time, where he can view more naked women than the most powerful and promiscuous king leader of all human history? Is that good? And, and maybe you would say, and we would all agree, hey, that's not good. I mean, that's, that seems bad for sure. Um, but my next question would be, well, when do you grow out of that? 
Like at what point does that become okay? To which neuroscientists, not biblical scholars, neuroscientists say, well, actually never. You'll never grow out. We'll come back to that in a minute. But, but you never grow out of the harmful effects of that. Paul goes on, he says, look, I agree with you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Or your translation might say, you, you must not be mastered by anything. Sexual desire has the power and the potential to become your master, to enslave you. I mean, isn't this the irony of all ironies? The, things, the thing we work so hard to free ourselves and liberate ourselves from these moral codes and these, these old stuffy, uh, strict laws and, 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 and strict guidelines. Those things that we freed ourselves, we freed ourselves to something else with even greater power to enslave us. That's what the apostle Paul's saying. Look, you would say food is made for the stomach and the stomach's made for food. And, and this makes sense. Like it's an appetite. Sexual desire is an appetite. You would say that it's an appetite that needs to be satisfied and to deprive it is bad, which is interesting because Paul's acknowledging something that Reich and, and, and Freud would say 1700 years after Paul's writing this. So they didn't come up with this. Paul's going, I know that this is the case. You, you would say this. You've made this argument that, that this is an appetite. It's a desire that needs to be satisfied. But here's what you'd say. You can't say that your bodies were made for sexual immorality. Meaning, meaning this, you wouldn't say your bodies were made simply to satisfy your sexual desires. And however you, just, you, you want to define immorality, I don't necessarily want to debate that with you, but we would all agree that there's certain things you could do sexually that would not be good for you that would not be good for your relationship, that would not be good for somebody that you were engaging in sexual behavior with. We all agree with that. We all agree that, that you weren't made to just satisfy your sexual desires regardless of the cost. Paul said, now, since you weren't made for that, I'm gonna tell you what you were made for, what your bodies were made for. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. Now, the next few verses, I'm just gonna tell you, they're not popular ones. In fact, people call them skippers because you get to just like, oh, just skip that one. That's, that's an old one. Like, that's not popular. Nobody wants, but I'm not gonna skip them because they matter. And, and God cares about you. And the reason God cares about you is because he cares about your body and he cares what you do with your body. And so he, he goes on and this is what he says. He says, run. Run from sexual sin because no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. And your, your translation might say flee, but if you were to look this up in a, in a Greek lexicon or a, or a Bible dictionary and, and you were to, to look, you were to get a picture of what he's actually trying to say, this is what you would find. Run! Like this is the metaphor. It's not, it's not like little run, it's like run! Like, you don't understand. You don't understand how this is gonna affect you. Like, um, forget the other people. I mean, that's not a good thing to say. And forget about God for a second. Like, there's nothing that so clearly affects your own body as misusing your body or your eyes sexually. And, and to this verse, neuroscientists and clinical psychologists would say, yep, yep. I don't know who this Paul guy is. I don't know when he wrote this. I don't know what he exactly meant, but it is true. There's no other thing that affects, so clearly affects your body like misusing it sexually. Do you know that there's research uh, on the effects of oxytocin and vasopressin? There's gonna be a test at the end of the sermon today, by the way. Um, 
Uh, the effects of oxytocin and vasopressin, uh, uh, the two chemicals that are released in your body um, during sex. And um, they've been scientifically proven, scientifically proven that an increased number of partners leads to a decrease in your capacity for intimacy. Not just physical partners, but digitally, the things you look at and the people that you engage with, even if it's not personal, that it actually decreases. You know, beyond that, the effects of pornography, a Cambridge study, hardly a, a conservative study, very liberal study, not by theologians, not by pastors, by clinical psychologists. There was a study done in Cambridge that proved that pornography, effects of pornography were that they reduced brain function created addiction, decreased pleasure, eroded attachment, increased loneliness, destroy marriages, foster abuse, promote aggression. All of this done in an independent, not a Christian study. On top of that, in the last half a century, by the way, I'm hoping you leave terrified about this, like so you can carry my burden with me, but in the last half a century, and this is the most alarming thing to me, psychologists widely observed an alarming decline and those with the capacity for secure attachment, which is the number one factor in true intimacy. If you're a psychologist or you know about psychology, you know about attachment theory. And my wife and I have learned significantly about this and our struggles with it because of things that happened in, in our past and back in our lives and things that happened to us and how this has impacted. But the, the breakdown of the nuclear family and multiple partners and cohabitation and internet pornography, they're all major contributing factors to this de decline in the last half a century since about the 1960s. This massive decline in secure attachment. And this matters. It matters for you. It matters for your future relationships. It matters for your kids and their future relationships. We are not going in a good direction. And this is why Paul said, Run! Run! When you're confronted with the temptation for sexual sin, and I'm not promoting any sin, but when you're, when you're confronted with that temptation, take any other exit but that one. Four, sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. We're not allowed talking about like, how does, this, how does this affect my relationship with God? Or is it a sin against somebody else? When you sin, which just means missing the mark. It's, a, it's an archery term. When you miss the mark sexually, which we all know that that's possible. When you do that, you sin against yourself. You're damaging yourself. It's damaging for you and for your body's chemistry. So the question is, what do I do about this? Which is the same question the people in Corinth were asking. Like, like what do we do about this? And, and so this was the end of chapter six. And then we start chapter seven. And I don't know who put the chapter markers on it, but it's like, he's continuing the same discussion. It's not a new discussion. But he goes on, he says, now regarding, he, say, he said all this in the context of that, regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So they were asking about this. They were asking questions. And his answer to the questions that they were, had in their letter was yes. Yes, what? This is where you need your seatbelts. Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Now, imagine being the guy who got Paul's letter and you're reading it to everybody. And it's like, yes, it is good for you to abstain from sexual relations. Who asked that question? 
We need to kick that person out of the group. Like, what in the world? Don't ask Paul questions. That's how we get ourselves in trouble. Like, like, what do you mean it's good to abstain from sexual relations? Fortunately, there was more in the letter. And the next word is like, I need everybody to say hallelujah. The next word was but. Right? It's like, thank God. Okay, we're, we're still hanging in there. But, he says, because. There's so much sexual immorality. Basically, because I know you're gonna try and satisfy this appetite anyway. Each man, here's the, here's the solution. Each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The, the, the danger of this is so great. We're gonna put it in, in the context of an institution where there's a highly committed monogamous relationship where each man has his own wife and each wife or each woman has her own husband in a monogamous relationship. Now, I know if you're a millennial or you're, you're Gen Z, you're like, monaga what? Like, you, you never heard, sounds like an old dinosaur or something, which is quickly becoming a dinosaur, by the way. Monogamous, just for your help, it does not mean one at a time. It's <laughs> not what it means. I know there's confusion. I'm here to clear it up. Monogamous means one for all time. Look, come on, intuitively, you know this. Intimacy requires exclusivity. If it's not intimate, it's not exclusive. If your boyfriend shows up with his buddies on date night, it tells you how he sees you, tells you the level of intimacy he wants to have with you. It's why only two people are invited to go on the honeymoon, because if not, it's not intimate. Like the whole family doesn't get to come. This is an intimate, exclusive trip for two people. See, when it comes to sexuality, accessibility minus exclusivity, giving somebody access or gaining access to somebody minus exclusivity erodes intimacy. This is not a theory. As I told you before, neuroscience has proven this. Sex was never intended simply for casual pleasure. It's a threat to intimacy. Here's Paul's point. When, when sexual desire is unbound and uninhibited, unregulated, leads to chaos. So Freud said, if you take the lid off, take away all the rules, leads to chaos and it's not good for you. And it's not good for our society. We live in a culture where sexual expression in almost any form is more permissible and more accessible than any other time in history. And exclusively, exclusive, exclusivity is not a value. So I'm gonna take you back to middle school, high school, those of you who grew up in church. Here's always our question. Where's the line? So where's the line? Like, I wanna, how, I wanna get as close as I can. I don't, how, how far is too far? I don't wanna go too far, but gosh, I wanna get as close to that line as I can to just get as much thrill as I can. Like, I don't wanna damage my body. I don't wanna damage somebody else, but where's the line? I'm gonna go back to what Paul said in the beginning. You're adults. That's my question for you. Where's the line? The Bible's full of instructions. And the more you follow them, the greater your potential for true intimacy. My question for you is, where's the line? Like, where's the line in terms of what you view online or what you view in theaters or who you interact with or how you interact with? 
What, what level of things you share with other people, what kind of access you're giving to other people in your life physically or digitally or emotionally, and what kind of access you're gaining into other people's lives physically, digitally, or emotionally. I wanted to get on the front of this with, with my, my family. So I know this sounds crazy, but I talked to my kids about this stuff. Not long ago, my, my son was, uh, had his, one of his first girlfriends and, and it was like, I, I, we loved having this young lady, great young lady in our house and, and, and we, they would usually hang out with us as a family and one, one week uh, or one time when she was over, our, our little guys were, were watching something in the living room. They wanna watch something on TV. So they go down to the basement. We have a theater room down in our basement. They went down to watch a show they wanted to watch. And so I just thought, well, it's probably not good that they're down there alone. So I'm just going to go down. Like, I'm sure I've got some projects I need to do down there. And so I went down the basement and I, I just thought like, hey, I, I want to I protect them. I want to protect my son and, and, and this girl. I, I feel responsible. And so I go down there and, you know, I'm doing some projects. And, and then, you know, the next time uh, they came over, you know, similar thing. And they go down the basement. And so one time after we had dropped her off at home, we're driving back home. And I, and I said to Talon, I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, um, have you ever asked uh, this young lady if her, if, if her dad, or have you ever asked her dad if he's okay with you guys being alone downstairs in our basement watching something on TV? And he's like, no. Like, why would I do that? And I, and I was like, well, I mean, it's just something you ought to think about. And and he said, I said, well, how do you think it would go if you asked him? And he's like, okay, good point. I got your point, dad. And he's, I was like, well, let, let me ask you something else. I said, do, do you realize that, and, and look, uh, high school sweethearts uh, get married all the time. It's not, it's not the predominant thing. It's a, it's a small percentage, but it ha- can happen. It can happen all the time. But likely she's somebody else's future wife. You ever thought about that? And, and the truth is, is that means somebody else is probably dating your future wife. And you ought to think about how you would want that other person to treat your future wife. And maybe you ought to treat her the way you would want that other person to treat your future wife. Like, and maybe you ought to offer to this person only what you would want your future wife to offer to the person that she's in a relationship. Have you ever thought about that? And he's like, dad, where do you come up with this stuff? (laughs) And I'm like, look, I care about you. I care about her. I care about your future. Here's my question. How wise, how much, how much access is wise with someone you're not married to? Whether you're a teenager, whether you're in your 20s, whether you're in your 50s, I don't care. How much access, based on all the research, how much access is wise with someone who's not your spouse? Non-exclusive access sexually, whether given or gained, erodes your capacity to experience deep, intimate human connection. If you're single or you're dating or cohabitating, I, I get it. Like you're probably mad at me right now and, 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 and that's okay. Um, email me. I, I would love for you to email me. I, I, I care. I, I, would, I would have a dialogue with you about it. Here's the thing. My question is the same for you. What should be exclusively reserved for your future spouse? And what do you hope your future spouse reserves for you? And, and so some of you would say, well, what if I'm planning to get married to the person I'm dating and we're, we're living together? So what if I'm planning to, to get married to them? I would say, well, then get married. 
Like this is the safest place. Like make the commitment so that the other person has the commitment as well because this is what's gonna go best for you. The Bible tells you, neuroscience tells you, history tells us, philosophy tells us, clinical psychology tells us, like all, all the evidence is there. Yeah, so some of you know we have a, an environment called two to one where we help couples prepare for marriage. And uh, we do a little survey with people and 90 plus percent. And I just want you to know, there's no shade here. I'm not casting any shade. It's because of this. 90 plus percent of the couples answer the question and say, yeah, I think it's good to cohabitate because it's a good test for marriage. Like that's the, most people there's, it's consensus, like 90 plus percent that this is a good thing. But in psychology today, just recently, a study, again, hardly conservative publication, independent study, um, it, it proved that cohabitation results in a greater number of failed relationships lower odds of actually getting married and a 30% higher rate of divorce. I mean, you ain't mad at me. It's just the statistics. In fact, I was sharing this with a guy uh, and his fiance who I was doing premarital counseling for and he got so mad. And I'm like, why are you mad? Do you not want to know the truth? Do you want not want to know the facts? And he's like, I just don't get what the point is. Why are you bringing it up now? I mean, we've already been living together. We're already sleeping together. I mean, what's stopping or moving out until we get married gonna prove? And it just popped into my head. I was like, that's a good question. I've not been asked that question before, but here's one thought on that is it proves how you're planning to relate to women who aren't your wife after you get married. Like if you're willing to sleep with somebody who's not your wife now, why aren't you willing to sleep with somebody who's not your wife later? Like, it's just a thought. Like he didn't like that either. And nobody asked me to do premarital counseling anymore. So that (laughs) makes it easy. Do you hate to be my kids dad or the dad of me to be your dad. But here's the thing. I bring this up because it, because it matters. It matters for you. And the Lord cares about you and he cares about your body. If you're married, what should be exclusively reserved for you and your spouse? I got an idea. You should ask them. What do you not want me to share with anybody else? What experiences in life? What, what conversations what, what do you want me to view or not view of anybody else that, that's not you? What physical interactions? What to you is exclusive? Jen and I, we have all sorts of guardrails in our relationship. We're never alone with somebody in a car uh, or in a, in a home or anywhere, anywhere in any private space that's, that's either not a family member, or that somebody of the opposite sex that's not a family member uh, or is not uh, each other, our spouse. We, we just don't. We, there's nothing in my, my world. She has my calendar. She knows where I am at all times on Life 360. It keeps me out of a lot of trouble, by the way. But, but like, she also has access to all my accounts, all my social media accounts, all my, my devices. She has, she has uh, the passwords for all of that stuff. There's, there's no secrets. It's, it's radical accessibility and radical exclusivity just with her. That fosters Intimacy. Now, here's what you need to know, just as we're wrapping up, there's no judgment here. If this has brought on feelings of guilt or shame, I want you to be free of that. In fact, I want to free you of that right now. This is what the scripture teaches. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. You're not guilty. We've all made mistakes. We've all missed the mark. We've all misbehaved sexually, either with somebody or in the things that we viewed. 
So look, I know some of you are mad at me and you're, you're arguing with me, but here, here's the thing I want you to know, and this is hard for me because if I'm just being really honest, I want you to like me, I do. There it is. I want you to like me, but here's what I want you to know. Because I'm one of your pastors, more than that, I want you to trust me. And I want you to trust me that I'll tell you the truth, even the hard ones. It's not good for you. What our culture says is normal, it's not good for you. I know you're like, oh, everybody does this. Everybody watches this. People engage in this all the time. They take business trips with somebody who's of the opposite sex that's not their spouse all the time. We already know where all that leads. Look, don't miss this. Doesn't feel good doesn't equal not true. Right? Doesn't feel good. Some of this may not feel good. It may feel challenging, may feel convicting. Doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, if you said to me, Joel, if you'd lose 20 pounds and had hair, you'd look better. I mean, that would be offensive and hurtful and seem unkind, but you'd be right, you know? Like, <laughs> look, our, our society wanted, I mean, no, it demanded liberation. Here's what the scripture says the scripture says is the truth is what sets us free. So, what's the truth? What's the truth about what's not good for you and what's not good for your kids and what's not good for our society and what's not good for your friends? We've got to elevate that. We've got to begin to talk about that. The scriptures offer us mental maps to reality. Jesus came as a rabbi. He came to lead us and teach us the right way to live. He came to teach us how things really work. And this is what the Apostle Paul said, in keeping with the teaching of Jesus. He said, you were made for the Lord and he cares about you and he cares about your body and what you do with your body. It's not too late for anyone. He can heal and restore and rewire any of us. It's not about where you've been. It's not about what you've done. That doesn't define you or determine your future or the future of your relationships. Wherever you find yourself from this point forward, this is what the scripture teaches. What would it look like for you to repent? I know it's a big church word, but repent, it doesn't mean for you to feel bad about it. It just means for you to turn and go in a due direction. That's all it means. What would it look like for you to go, you know what? There's certain things that I'm viewing. There's certain things that are ways I'm engaging. There's certain things that I'm, ways I'm acting that are not exclusive. I'm giving access or gaining access to people that are not my spouse and that's not good for my future. It's not good for my current relationship. How can you ele elevate the value of exclusivity for the sake of experiencing true intimacy and then begin to walk in that direction? That's what faith is. The essence of faith is to choose that I can trust that what God wants for me is the best thing for me, not what culture has taught me or what we've experimented in, which is a disaster of experience, of an experiment. How could I trust him and in faith walk in a new way? Wherever you find yourself from this point forward, what does it look like for you to walk in a new direction for the sake of experiencing true intimacy? Here's the thing. If, if not you, who? If not us, who? If not now, when? You see, our world went through one sexual revolution and I believe it needs to go through another one. And in this large influential church in a large influential city, 
Why not us? Why not now? As some of you, I have a lot of stake. I have four kids growing up in this world. They have a massive headwind against them in terms of experiencing the type of true intimacy that God designed for them to experience. What if we were to be courageous and say, no more, this isn't good for us. We're going in a bad direction. We're gonna elevate the truth and we're gonna walk in a new way. Let me pray for you. God, I pray today for somebody who's here and I pray by the power of your spirit for somebody who feels judged or feels condemned or feels picked on or singled out. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would gently wrap your arms around them and and let them know that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. That's what the scripture teaches us. It's your kindness that, that brings the truth in the midst of error. God, I pray for somebody who's here today who they know the things that they view, the level of access they've given to somebody or they've gained in somebody's life. It's not good for them. It's not healthy for them. It's not leading them towards what they truly desire on the inside. God, I pray that they'd have the courage to invite you in to give them wisdom, to know what does it look like to turn and walk in a new way, to walk in a new path. And then I pray you'd bring people around them, maybe in a group here or with friends, that they could elevate this in a conversation and they could talk about the truth of what's really going on with them and that those people, instead of condemning, would encourage them and rally around them and guide them toward ultimately what they were chasing after in the first place. And I pray that you would protect our hearts and our minds as we're having this discussion, this important discussion over these next few weeks. And I pray you'd guide us in all truth and all righteousness. And I pray it in your name. Amen.